Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, as we read verses 18 through 20. Hear now the word of God. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you give us your spirit today? to illuminate your word, to help us understand it, to open our hearts and not only help us understand, but to love what we hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When we looked at last week's passage, we certainly ended by not looking at everything Jesus had to say. Just in case you weren't here or because we all need refreshers, last week Jesus asked the disciples that crowning question, uh, not only who do people say that I am, but he asked them perhaps the even more pointed question, what about you, who do you say that I am? And we paid quite a bit of attention last week to that question and we paid attention to Peter's answer where he said, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And we also looked at the first part of how Jesus responds to Peter's answer. Um, Even as Peter gave the right answer, Jesus wants him to know that he didn't give it in his own power. Instead, what did Jesus say in verse 17 last week? He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so last week we talked about the need for the Spirit to reveal God's truth to us. It's not enough for us to be presented with the truth. We need the Spirit to reveal these things to us. We need Him to light upon what we see there in the text. And so my agenda this week is very simple. Let's keep going with Jesus' response. Jesus gives more. And of course we had no time to get to it last week. Uh, And so... In particular today, I want us to note three more essential realities that the apostles need to know and that the church today needs to recapture an appreciation of. And those three things are, from this text today, first, the rock, second, the church, and third, the keys. All of these are things that I I think many of us might be very confused about and wonder what on earth is going on here. And so... Let's look at each of them in turn. First, we need to understand the idea of the rock as Jesus presents it here. I want you to hear the wording once more from verse 18. Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here is the million dollar question that has seemingly flummoxed so many throughout church history. By the way, I looked up flummox in the dictionary. It's not there. So this is a... But I think I'm allowed to say it. They're flummox. Um, What is this rock that Jesus says the church is built upon? So if you go back to the early church fathers, most of them are split. 
Some, there's a fellow named Theodore of Mopsuestia, and I promise not to say that word again. Uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia, I did say it again, actually. I can't just say Theodore, I can't say it. Um, He says that the rock Jesus is talking about is the confession of Jesus as Christ. And Theodore, no last name, Theodore says that Jesus is, all Jesus is really doing is addressing Peter as the first in a long line of many who will confess him as Christ. So even the early church fathers did not follow the Roman Catholic reading of this. And we're going to talk about what that is and the reason that I'm going to talk about it, even though maybe none of you care about Roman Catholicism, is because it dominates the way many of us think about this passage, or at least we need to be able to think through how it is understood by many uh, people who are in the church today. So we need to be basically be able to think well about this. If you were, do, were doing a head count, and I had an early version of this sermon where I sat here and read you church father after church father, and it was a thousand words longer than the version I'm preaching for you today. So uh, there is a, there, on the cutting room floor, there are a lot of church father quotes, and I'm sparing you. But if you were going to summarize how the church fathers thought about this question, what is this rock? Who is this rock? What's going on? 17 church fathers identify the, the rock with Peter. Eight of them with the apostles. 44 with Peter's faith. And 16 with Christ. So the vast majority of, of, of church fathers did not look at this and say, Peter's the rock. Instead, they said something related to Peter, like his confession or his faith or just the apostles altogether are the rock Jesus is talking about here. Um, and there were a small minority who said, yeah, it's, it's Peter himself. Um, most of the church fathers by a mile did not read the passage the way the Roman Catholics ended up reading it. Now, by the time of the Reformation, here's how it washed out. If you were a Roman Catholic, then you thought that this rock being spoken of here was Peter. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. And if you were a Protestant, then you looked at this passage and said, well, this rock is the confession of Peter. Or it's the apostles. So let me see if I can give you the the Roman Catholic understanding of this passage. And if this starts to feel a little bit academic, just know there's a reason this is the first point. And I don't want it to be the last point. So... The Roman Catholic reading was something like this. And by the way, I differentiate and I I distinguish between the words Catholic and Roman Catholic. Catholic is a good word. It's the universal church. It's the church of all ages. It's the church we're a part of. The Roman Catholic Church is a particular sect or subsect of the church. And so when we talk about the Catholic Church, I try to always say Roman Catholic when I mean Roman Catholic. Um, just, just, Just as a heads up. So Peter, so here's how the Roman Catholics would look at this passage and see what's, what's going on here. They say Peter gives the answer first. Peter is the leader of the apostles. Peter is really important to Jesus. And so Jesus is saying here in front of all the other apostles that Jesus intends one of them to be the leader. That's how they would understand this. Jesus intends one of them to be a leader. But he's also in this moment saying that the order of the apostles will always be true of the church and that there will always be someone inheriting this position that Peter is in. Peter's mantle, Peter's position, Peter's chair. 
There always needs to be somebody holding these keys that Jesus talks about. And the Roman Catholics would, would have us believe that for the rest of the church's existence on this earth, Jesus wants us to search around for someone else who can today even sit in and, and sit in Peter's chair and has the authority to bind and loose in heaven and on earth. And of course, the claim by the time of the Reformation and certainly today is that the Pope of Rome is that individual who sits in Peter's chair and even still today, they would say, is binding and loosing. Exactly what they say Jesus is talking about. Now, I do not, I'm not going to give you a whole history of the papacy. I wouldn't even do that if it was a Sunday school class. But just know that nothing about church history has told us that the church submits to this understanding and this reading. Um, There have been, and also, there has not been a smooth succession of popes. Um, In reality, there were times when there were no popes. There were times when there were several popes simultaneously at the same time, all of them excommunicating each other. Um, the idea of, of the papacy has had a very long, the idea that the papacy has had a long, straight, unbroken line from Peter to modern day Francis is, is a fantasy. Um, it's something that I think Rome has been very good at selling to people uh, and it wants people to believe. Um, that fantasy only makes sense if you squint your eyes at a church history and you really import a great deal of things into the text today that simply are not here. The reformers, in response to this elaborate reading of this passage, generally looked at this passage and they heard Jesus' words and they heard Jesus saying that his church would be built upon the confession of Peter. And they were right to point out just how many in the early church agreed with their reading. And I I will admit, this is the reading I have been partial to all my life. Um, In this reading, it isn't Peter that the church is built upon, but it's Peter's confession that the church is built upon. Um, After all, he's speaking to Peter in the second person. And whatever the church is built upon is spoken of in the third person. So he doesn't say, on you, I will build my church. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's speaking to Peter. This rock is not Peter. Now, here's what you should know. Even among the church fathers, those who do identify the rock with Peter himself still don't hold the Roman Catholic reading of this passage They do not see it as centering around Peter in some special, unique way as a person. Nor do they see any kind of teaching here that Peter is supreme or greater than the other apostles here. Okay, so what are we supposed to make of this, right? Who's right? How are we supposed to read the passage? You may be tempted to think, well, we have to decide one way or the other. It has to be one or the other. Either Jesus is talking about Peter here. In which case, we should all become Roman Catholics and let's start listening to Pope Francis. Or Jesus is saying that the confession of Jesus as Christ is is the, the confession is the rock that the church is built upon. And we have to choose. In which case, we can carry on our merry way as Protestants and Reformed Presbyterians. So in other words, we are tempted to think that this is some kind of binary choice one way or the other. And you may be wondering where I'm going with this. What are you saying? Um... I want to suggest, uh, I hate using the phrase third way, but I'm going to suggest a different way. <laughs> it's not a third way, it's a different way. We, I say we simply go back to the methodology of the early church fathers. 
It's very hard to read a passage like this without the baggage of the Reformation. It's hard to read a passage like this without the baggage of what we know the papacy is today. But part of the reason I want to suggest this is that the church fathers were writing in a time before baggage was attached to the Roman Catholic papacy. So if we go back to the early church fathers and we look at how they talk before the pope, there's such thing as the pope then we start, start to realize we don't need to make a binary choice. We don't need to be partisan in the way we read, we read the passage. And I found a lot of inspiration here from Herman Bovink. As I was doing my study on this, I thought, you know, I really want to be careful about how I do this. And so I started reading Herman Bovink. And Herman Bovink is writing in the, the late 1800s, uh, the early 1900s. He's a, he's a very modern writer, even though it might not sound very modern to talk about somebody in the 1800s. And... I found him very helpful on this. So you're going to hear his name a few times. Just know that I am, I'm, I'm happy to plagiarize good theologians. So here's what Herman Bovink does. Herman Bovink says, look, belief in Peter as the leader of the apostles does not imply an argument for the Pope. And again, he says, we need to go back and we need to sort of become like early church fathers again. He says, if you look at the New Testament, you find out that Peter actually is very important. He's a very important figure in the New Testament. Uh, He seems to be foremost of the apostles. He is usually mentioned first in the list of apostles. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts. All of them mention Peter first when they're listing off the apostles. We know that Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. We know that Peter took center stage in the life of the church after Jesus' ascension into heaven. Before there was a such thing as the Pope in Rome, there would have been nothing weird about admitting that Peter has this important leadership role in the group of the apostles. It's only after the rise of the papacy that the Roman Catholic Church begins to look back and sort of make a Pope-shaped mountain out of this otherwise innocuous molehill. So that's sort of what happens. I think I'm going to do a little historifying for you. I'm going to make up another word, not just flummox, historifying. <laughs> so what does is, what is Bovink say? Bovink says we should admit that Peter's important. We don't have to downplay Peter. And he, but he says we should deny that that means the papacy. He says that just because you say Peter is the leader doesn't mean that he's the pope. And the way that Bavink brings all these early these things together is similar to what the early church fathers do. Here's what, here's what he says. He says, Peter is and has proved himself to be a rock by his confession of Jesus as the Christ. A confession that he owed not to himself, but to the revelation of the Father. So the church fathers saw the importance of Peter, but it never saw Peter's importance apart from the truth that he confesses. It's not Peter the Pope, it's Peter the Confessor who is the rock. So Jesus, in other words, if what Bavink is saying here is right, then Jesus builds his church upon this rock, the church leaders who profess and uphold the very truths of Christ as found in God's word. Putting it another way, the church is only as faithful as those leading it and proclaiming the gospel. It's why the Reformation ended up being so sadly necessary. The leadership of the Roman church had become corrupted 
and lost in its own maze of of rules and man-made doctrines. They had lost the confession of what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ and the Savior. They had lost the gospel of justification by faith alone. And very key, they condemned those who taught it. They condemned those who taught it. Jesus is saying that the rock the church is built upon is the truth of Jesus as confessed by his church, which is carried and confessed by his people in his church, in his world. The church which confesses Jesus as Christ is a church that is built upon an unshakable foundation, a foundation of Jesus Christ and his prophets and his apostles, not just one man. So here's what so many modern readers are more uncomfortable with. And this is more of a a struggle for modern people. Jesus' plan really does involve men. So Jesus says that the church is built upon men who confess these truths. Now, you may not like the idea of a church being built upon human beings at all in any sense. But you would have to take that up with, with God. Because he doesn't just talk like this here, right? If, if you just had this passage, you might think, okay, I, I can sort of see what's going on. But in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says this exactly. He says, the church is, this is a quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So notice how he doesn't separate men from the foundation of the church. Instead, he includes mortal men in the foundation of the church, prophets and apostles. Um, This is not a church with mortal man solely as the foundation, but with prophets and apostles, with Jesus himself as the most important part composing the foundation. So here's what Bavink does. He kind of brings all these things together. He says the rest of the New Testament, the apostles are viewed as master builders, who by their preaching base the church on Christ as its foundation. So again, you know, borrowing the language of Paul here, the foundation is the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ. But of course, Jesus is the most important. He is the cornerstone. He's the chief. So I think, I think it's best for us to understand in broad strokes what's happening here in this verse. Right? Even if we even if we struggle in understanding the particulars, and I, I hope what I'm about to say is especially helpful if I've lost you up to this point. If it feels like I've given you a maze that, to wander through and you feel like you lost me at the third turn. Jesus asked his disciples who he is. Peter answers that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus points out that his, this answer came from God in heaven And not from flesh and blood. That's what happened last week. Then using a play on words. Jesus says this whole church. Will be built upon this rock. Now. Maybe you follow. Maybe you don't. Maybe you agreed. Maybe you disagreed with what I. How I understood this rock. Here's the thing. You do not have to be in precise agreement. With somebody else on what this rock is. In order to remain a reformed Presbyterian. You can be a Presbyterian and have a diverse number of interpretations of what this, this rock is. This rock might be Peter's words of confession. This rock might be the confession of Jesus as Christ. And the rock might be Peter, representing all of those who confess this. That's the reading that I lean towards. Um, 
But in every case, Jesus is saying there is no church without the confession and there is no confession without the Christ. Because the whole thing, even the church itself, is formed around and built around Jesus and who he is. That's why Jesus is at the center. That's why Jesus is the focus. So even if you struggle to follow this first point, or you're not interested in this at all, like maybe some of you are sitting here going, yes, I'm extremely interested in this discussion about this rock. And some of you are like, I can't wait for point two. I just want to move to the next one. Wherever you are on that spectrum, you know, here's what I want you to take away. The thing that constitutes the church is Jesus himself, which makes our confession of him central to who we are and what we're called to. Jesus is meant to be at the center. But I also want you to see, and we're going to lead right into this, that this is not a confession separated from the church. So let's keep going with Jesus' answer. Let's move to the second point. We come to the topic of the church. Notice how Jesus is the one who brings up the idea of the church here. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think this point is uneasy to many of us because think of the moment we live in. Uh, I'm going to talk to you guys in Sunday school, at least at the first part of Sunday school. I do book recommendations. And I've been reading a book lately by an author who, uh, she's a sociologist. She studies the mood of people and the, the, the way that people think. And one of the things she says is, we are in an era of extreme distrust of authorities. We're in an era of extreme distrust of institutions. Well, guess what churches are? <laughs> churches... <laughs> are authorities and institutions. And so for a variety of reasons, churches find themselves suspicious to people. Because in the moment, why? I think you could point to a few things. One is, we as a people, especially, let's just face it, Western Americans, we are suspicious of leaders in general. Uh, We don't like the idea of anyone on earth having any kind of authority. Um, democracy has taught us that no one's supposed to be in charge of us. And we live in an age that is very hesitant to enter into commitments. Um, We find that life is easy if we don't make commitments. And so we don't enter commitments. And so there's less pain. So you combine sort of this, these struggles, all that Jesus says here is just begging to be explained away by modern readers. Because we live in a very deeply, deeply individualistic culture. Individualism is probably the defining characteristic of the culture we live in. We can be, I mean, think of it like this. We have, even in the last 10 years, we've become deeply individualistic. What happened with COVID was everything about us that we were doing, it was like it got amplified times 10. So every impulse that we had It didn't change. We just did more of it. And so what did we do? What did we do during COVID? We kind of got glued to our phones and our devices and we met with less people. We spent time with less people. We came to church less often. We got used to living our lives. And so the individualism, which was already a part of our lives before, that we just took the volume and we cranked it up to 11 because ours goes to 11. Um, 
We can be so individualistic that when we look at a passage like this, talking about the church, we think there must be some mistake. Surely Jesus didn't build a church, right? Surely Jesus plans, didn't plan for earthly gatherings with membership and elders and, and deacons and, and buildings to meet in and formal ways to handle conflict or, or disagreement. And yet Jesus talked a ton about these exact things. And he put the church at the center of how his people were meant to organize their earthly pursuit of him. And remember, Jesus speaks of the church as being built upon a rock. Think of what a rock is. A rock is not a flimsy man-made foundation. Um, you'll notice that rocks can't be made. I mean, now we can make styrofoam and form it into stuff that looks like rocks, you know. But we can't make rocks. Rocks are God-made, not man-made. See, Jesus is not building a churchless foundation, and he is not building a foundationless church. Today you see this impulse toward a foundationless church. Uh, Many people want to look at the Bible and think that, well, nothing came before. It's just me and my Bible without a care for what came before. They don't care about church fathers or church councils or church history or church confessions. They don't care what the reformer said or the puritan said or what anyone else said i think that attitude is that old impulse toward a religion with no foundation it's sort of a this raw individualistic spirituality plus bible yet notice that jesus tells us that the prophets and apostles are the foundation of the church in other words we should care about those who came before us and what they said a foundationless church, Christianity, is not healthy, right? We, we believe in sola scriptura, but we don't believe in solo scriptura, right? Scripture alone is our ultimate guide to truth, but we do not read scripture all alone by ourselves in, in isolation apart from what came before. Instead, we read scripture in conversation with the church that came before us because the church that came before us is the rock. This is part of the reason why I include quotes from the Puritans and from church fathers in my sermons and and on the front of our, our bulletin because we're meant to be in conversation with those who came before in struggling to understand the scripture. We need to resist what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, thinking that if it's newer, it's better, and if it's older, then it must be bad. See, Jesus is not building a foundationless church. But you also see this impulse toward a churchless foundation in our culture. Um, And I'm not even talking about people who are non-Christians. I'm not talking about people who are enemies of the church. I mean, Bible-believing Christians can sometimes have this impulsive reaction against the idea of the church. Even the idea of the church is problematic. And again, the individualistic culture is the air we breathe. We don't even realize how much individualism presses on us and impacts the way that we think. Um, Individualism. Individualism can show up like this. We like Jesus. We like faith. We like the Bible. We like solid preaching. We may even consume preaching in books. Right, uh, Listen to, to podcasts that talk about those kind of things. We believe in those things, but we still have 
We can still see that, that that individualism is pressing on us because we have something in us that likes all of those things, but we react to the idea of Jesus having a church. Fundamentally, I, I think this stems from a belief that churches are really ultimately just human institutions and that they aren't from God and that God is not at work in them. And if he is at work in them, he's at work in them in the same way he's at work in other voluntary civic organizations. Or he's, the, he's at work in the same way that me and my friend group, when we get together, are together with God, right? And so we don't think there's anything special about the idea of the church. And you, you see that, and, and, and maybe you don't think that, but maybe you have those tendencies. Maybe you... Maybe you tell yourself that's not the case, but you can feel yourself. You can feel the individualistic temptations coming up. Um, If you buy into the individualism of our day, you may think that all that really matters is a spiritual experience in your own heart. And because of that, church is seen as optional or it's seen as man-made or it's seen as unimportant because – you know that you can have spiritual feeling experiences even without being at church. Me and my Bible. I I had a moment of ecstasy while I was reading scripture. There was no preacher bringing it to me. It was just me and my Bible. And because of that, I know that I can have those things I yearn for without needing a church. And so what we do is we, we, we say, look, the, the, the gold standard is whether I had a spiritual experience. And if I did, then I didn't know that all the other stuff is not that necessary and not that important. And so <clears throat> what do we do? And when we are thinking like individualists, we're thinking the value of the church is found in what it does for us and the spiritual sense that we are pursuing and that it helps foster in us. So we, in other words, we think of the church as something that's meant to serve our individual pursuit. And if you have a little bit of a voice, and I suspect because we're all Westerners and because we're all sinners, that there is something in us that thinks like that to one degree or another. Um, And if you have a voice like that inside of you, just know that is our culture talking. It is all around us. And it is it is seriously like the fish that doesn't know what water is because it just breathes it all day long. But if you, if you see those impulses within yourself, if you think, you know, uh, if someone asks, how was church today? And your, your initial reaction is, well, I didn't get much out of it this time. Right? Have you ever talked that way? I bet you have. I bet I have. I'm pretty sure I have. <laughs> if you've ever talked that way, just imagine what lies behind that sort of answer, right? The value of the church is in what it does for me and my sense of well-being, right? And we don't think of ourselves as, we, if someone says, how did church go today? And you say, you know, I was there. I worshiped with God's people. Uh, I didn't think about it very much, but I think people were blessed to be around each other. And I think we built each other up. In other words, instead of thinking about what I did for myself, we're thinking about what we did maybe for the rest of the body. What a different way of thinking. And I don't think it comes naturally to us. I think that just shows how much individualism has become a part of the way we inform ourselves about church and why it exists. Um, And so here's the challenge. Test your inclinations and your impulses against what Jesus is saying. Are you being informed by scripture or are you reflecting the cultural moment in the way that you are reading the Bible and thinking about the church? 
Remember, if God is God, you should expect him to disagree with you. You should expect him to correct you. So if you're hearing this and you're like, I don't like this, then you might be on the right track. Right? Jesus is, Jesus is talking about a group that can be seen and known and belonged to and participated with in this world. Jesus believes in the church. He establishes the church. He gives rules to govern and help his church. Imagine if he then said, church... No, I have an invisible people that will come to heaven one day. But I do not plan on building outposts in the world or giving them a place to physically go to be a part of, to meet together. I don't, if they sin, no, I have no plan for how they're supposed to handle that with one another. Just imagine if Jesus did that. Half of the New Testament would be a waste. Let me speak to you as an individual for a moment. Um, Jesus loves you. Too much to leave you spinning out of orbit on your own in this world without a church. He loves you too much for that. It's tempting to believe that just having our own faith is sufficient. And that as long as we can be saved by faith, we really don't need anything else in our spiritual lives. It's tempting to presume that we will be able to persevere to the end even without church membership. Maybe God doesn't intend to use the church To help me persevere to the end. Very tempting thought to have. I would say to such a person that you are playing spiritual roulette. Jesus believes that all Christians need and will have something called the church as a part of their life if they're to flourish. And he assumes that all Christians may at one time or another need to have the church come alongside of them in their sin. And they're going to need someone to reprove them and confront them and possibly even put them out of that church if they persist. We'll see that in a couple chapters. It's extremely common for people to desire to avoid the commitment involved in church membership, but we all need to be challenged. Jesus loves us all too much to believe that we are so great that we can spiritually grow without accountability. For many, this is, this is a gaping hole in their spiritual God-given armor. This is a gaping hole. So many are vulnerable in this area, especially given all of the pressures that I've just mentioned as far as individualism and the impulses that it gives to us, right? The individualistic impulse is, is it's, it's like taking the gaping hole in the armor and spreading it even bigger. Let's let the enemy have a really good shot at me and I have no way to guard myself. So here's the part where I just kind of take a pause and just say, test what I'm saying against Jesus's words. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is the one talking about the church here, right? It's not, it's not my idea, right? I didn't import the word from somewhere else. Um, it doesn't come from my imagination, In fact, if I'm really honest, I think when I first got here, I decided to talk about this topic. And I think everybody was like, oh, he's obsessed with the topic of church membership. I don't really want to look like I'm like, that's my hobby horse. And so I actually thought about trying to find a different sermon to preach from this text today (laughs) because I don't want to feed the perception that that is my hobby horse. I would rather dodge the topic of the church for a while longer so that I seem really chill on that subject. But I'm kind of a coward, so I'm going to blame Jesus. I'm not kind of a coward. I'm a coward. 
it's Jesus's fault though, right? Because Jesus is the one talking about the church here again. It would be really irresponsible of me to skip past this and not talk about the church. All we're doing here, I hope, is trying to understand what Jesus is saying. So you don't like the idea of the church, reckon with Jesus on that. Go to his word, open it up, look for yourself, study it. Ask the question, does Jesus believe in the church? Does Jesus think the church is important to our spiritual lives? In what way? Look at the passages where he talks about the church, specifically this passage and specifically in Matthew 18. Look at both of those places and then look at the rest of the New Testament and ask yourself the question, just, does Jesus intend to build a church? Jesus is talking about an identifiable group who are in and, and part of this world, people who are physically with Jesus, who confess the name of Jesus. But maybe you think to yourself, yes, but, but God, is, God is sovereign. He doesn't even need a church. A, a visible, visible institution seems so unnecessary. And, and, and there's one sense in which you're right. God could have done something else. He could have done this without a church. Um, I haven't quoted Herman Bovink enough. Here's another. He says, God certainly could have, have led his people to salvation without the means of the church or office or word or sacrament. But it was his pleasure to gather his elect by the ministry of human beings. God decided to include human beings and how we are called out of this world, and how we're spiritually fed. That was his decision. He decided to do it. He could have done otherwise. But he freely chose to create a church that lives in the world that you can see, that you can go and join, and that you can be a part of. And he freely chose to do this this way because he loves you. The church is not just an otherworldly institution, but it's also not a man-made institution. Instead, it is a visible outpost in a hostile land that people can see and they can come to and they can be part of and they can live their spiritual lives in and they can be cared for and they can be used as a means to help other people too. Um, That's the plan that God had. Even though he could have done it differently, this is the way he decided to do it. Now third, we need to understand this idea of the keys, keys that Jesus mentioned. Look specifically at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, I know I quoted Herman Bovink and I'm going to keep quoting him for another moment. Here's what he says about this phrase, keys of the kingdom. He says, there is in the church no other power than the power of the keys, the administration of the word and the sacraments. Um, If I could put it uh, very simply, I think this. The church doesn't have unlimited power to do whatever it wants on earth. That's part of what he's saying here. Instead, what the church does is what the church is given to do. It is the church has power, but it is only ministerial. That means taking something that's given to it and using that thing that's given to it. That's what ministerial means. It's ministerial and it's declarative, which means that we preach. It means that we teach. It means that we declare, we speak what God has said, but we do not declare our own words. We don't declare our own ideas and our own notions. Instead, the church has authority, but only because God has spoken and given his church authority to say and declare what God himself has said and declared. Notice a few things about the keys in the passage. The first thing to see is that they are given Verse 19 says they're given. 
They don't belong to the church. They're not, they're not the rightful property of the church. They are given to the church. They belong to God in Christ. But God is pleased to give the church that confesses Christ the privilege of being his minister. That's the first thing. The keys are given. Second, notice that the keys are placed in their hands of the church. The, the disciples are stewards. They're servants in God's house. But God is the head of the house. Um, third, notice that the keys are used in a specific way. The keys are used to bind and loose. Um, the idea here is not of, of handcuffing or apprehending. We're not talking about a law enforcement type of binding and loosing. Instead, the better picture here is of someone who has a key to a storehouse and the keys allow the church to take God's goods and his teachings and his work and, and to share them with his people. Um, the church, the minister, goes down into God's storehouse and brings out God things for God's people who need God's truths. Think of the implications of this for how we think about pastors or how we think about elders or deacons. Um, we as church officers are just stewards. We're just stewards. Um, uh, I was told by one of my professors not to talk about Lord of the Rings in the pulpit because in the PCA especially we do that too much apparently. I can't help but think though when you think of a steward though, think of if you don't like Lord of the Rings, you're lost here. I'll be quick about this. But when they go to Minas Tirith and you see there's a steward on the throne instead of the king. And so you see, at least certainly you see this pictured really well in the movie. They go into the throne room, the hobbits do, and what do they see? They see the steward sitting on this tiny throne off to the side. And there's this large, glorious throne that's unoccupied. Because the steward doesn't sit in the king's throne. The king sits in the king's throne. The steward just sits there and serves the kingdom, but he's not the king. And I think that's a great picture of what a pastor and what an elder is meant to be. All we are is stewards. The officers of the church have no power on their own. Uh, in and of themselves, apart from God's word and God's command, church officers are empty-handed. And so this means that churches should be modest, right? This means that churches shouldn't say and do things that God hasn't given the church to say and do. Uh, it means that the church should not ask things of people as spiritual duties that God hasn't commanded. Um, ministers are our shepherds, but we're only under shepherds because there is a great shepherd who can, we can never displace and we can never overrule. Um, God is a shepherd who has spoken and that we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to listen to him. He's a shepherd who will one day return and he will ask every church officer if we lorded it over his people or whether we gently cared for them with love and attention. Now you may notice this language where Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that these keys pertain to something on earth that corresponds to something true in heaven. In other words, the activity of the church in this world, the institutional church, right? That, that group that we're very suspicious of, impulsively suspicious of, I think. That group is relevant for what is true of a believer's eternal soul. Or you might put it this way. When Jesus' church on earth ministers God's word faithfully, what it ministers is relevant to your eternal state and destiny. I'll say that again just so that, because it might sound convoluted. 
When Jesus' church on earth ministers God's word faithfully, what it ministers is relevant to your eternal state and destiny. If we're faithful. Church, in other words, is not irrelevant to our spiritual life. And this is sort of brings us back around to what we were talking about uh, in this second point. This idea that, in, that as a culture, we, we want to think of church as being very irrelevant. And what Jesus is saying here with the keys of the kingdom is you can't think that way and be faithful to Jesus. Because Jesus says he has committed these things to a church, whether you like it or not. Many Christians have sort of an attitude about their spiritual life where they see the church as a bonus. They see the church as a, as a helper. They see church as sort of an add-on that it's ultimately optional, right? It might help me, but I don't need it. Jesus, on the other hand, what does he do? He sees the church as actually having something far more important than that. Study what he means by the keys of the kingdom here and ask yourself, if he gives the keys to, of the kingdom to the church, then why would I treat the church like it's not, not important? Amen. He doesn't have a personalized, individualized view of our spiritual lives. If Jesus wanted each individual Christian to just live life as just me and God, me and Jesus, let me suggest he would not have said this to the disciples here at all. Why would you even need a church? Because what he's doing here is he's taking our spiritual lives out of the realm of the private. And he's saying, it is absolutely the business of the church because I have made it your business. It turns out each of our spiritual states is relevant to one another. It, it should matter to you how the other spiritual lives of other Christians in your life are going. When we ask each other how it's going, you know, it's sure it's fine to say, you know, my car broke down this week. Um, um, but are we willing to talk about how our spiritual lives are? Because... We're part of the church. This is the place where those things are really meant to be discussed and where we're meant to have other people that will actually care. If you ask your coworkers who are not believers to help you spiritually, they will not be any help. This is a place where you can come and not just hear from the pulpit, but from other believers. I want to help you. I want to be a blessing to you. I'll pray for you this week. That's something the world won't do for you. So Jesus pictures the church's business as, as binding and loosing. Um, there's one Puritan writer. He, he does a good job of summarizing this. I'm going to read him here. He says, he says, the sense is, Peter, I entrust you and the rest of my apostles with the whole administration of my gospel. You shall lay the foundation of the Christian church and administer all the affairs of it, opening the truths of the gospel of the word and governing those who shall receive the faith of the gospel. Our Savior, by this promise, declared his will that his apostles should settle the affairs of the gospel church, determining what should be lawful and unlawful, and setting rules according to which all succeeding ministers and offices in this church should act, which our Lord would confirm in heaven. I cannot think that the sense of binding and loosing here is merely excommunicating and absolving, but a doctrinal or judicial determining of things lawful and unlawful granted to the apostles. That's the Puritan writer, Matthew Poole. He's not our Matthew, but I, you have to say that a lot because Matthew Poole is like all over the place as a Puritan writer. It's a great name. It's a good name. We, he, we hear about the idea of church discipline or, and binding and loosing, and I think we automatically think binding and loosing must be about excommunication. Um, and if you don't know what that is, that's okay. We're going to talk about that in a few chapters. But 
But actually, the keys are much bigger than that. It's not just about excommunication. Um, Guy Waters was one of my professors in seminary, and he says it this way. He said, Christ has expressly entrusted authority to his apostles to order the life of the people of God under the New Testament. And so don't just reduce the work of the church to excommunication, right? That is, that's something that I hope I never have to do, and it's something I've only seen in one church that I've ever been a part of. Um, Church discipline is so much bigger than excommunication. Think about this. Any time that you and I sit under the preaching of the word of God, we are experiencing church discipline. Um, because it's the discipline of admonition, right? It, it happens when God is discipling us and he's teaching us and he, he's shaping us, right? That discipleship and discipline are closely tied to each other. So the church's responsibility, the way that Jesus has planned it, the way that Jesus has constructed it, is for God's word, the teaching of the apostles, to govern everything that it touches in our lives, and especially by the means by which the church is governed, right? So it is the rock of Jesus and his apostles upon which the church is built. None of us, no church officer especially, has authority in ourselves. It always comes from God, and it always has to faithfully reflect what God has said. When we steer away from the word of God, then we cease leading in the way that Jesus has said. Now, is all of this good or bad news? Well, Jesus tells us he creates a church. He invests it with the keys. What does he say about such a church? I, I feel bad that we are just looking at this at the very end. This should pervade every time we think about this passage. We should just be reading the stinger at the end where Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why won't hell prevail? Is it, is it that the, church, the, the gates of hell won't prevail because of the strength of the individuals in the church? No. Is it because of the, the gravity of our faith? Do we just possess incredible faith as Christians? Not ultimately. Uh, we often have very weak, wavering faith. Uh, Will the gates of hell not prevail because of our raw determination, our deep sense of education, and because of our long history of good works? No way. Hell will not prevail because the head and protector of the church is Jesus. Hell will not prevail because of the foundation, because of the protection of God, and because of the authority of Jesus himself, by which he uses the faithful ministry of his church to guard the sheep, to protect the walls, and to keep our souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you love us so much that you sent your Son. And in his coming, he taught us of the importance that you give to your church. We ask you to help us, O God, to see your church for what it is, the foundation of the church as it is united to Christ and proclaiming the true foundation of Jesus as the Son of God. Make us faithful. Make us submissive. Change us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.